Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisor Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 45. I'm your host, Pavel Braminski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actual tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisor practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Brad Amman. Brad has been in the financial services for over 17 years. The primary area of expertise is financial, estate, and tax planning, focusing on strategies that include the use of life insurance and investment vehicles. He has had a great deal of experience working with both business owners and high net worth individuals. Brad holds a certified financial planner designation, which has enhanced his education in financial planning, as well as helped him become a specialist at portfolio construction and asset management. Brad, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Pavel. My pleasure. Super excited to have you on the podcast today and speak with you today. So let's get started. First, let's uh, let's maybe start with a firm. So tell me about your firm. What do you do and who do you serve? Our firm is called Cornwall Wealth Management. We are a all-encompassing firm that covers everything from stocks and bonds through to estate planning, tax and estate planning, insurance products. Basically, we're one-stop shopping. We have about 12, I think, advisors within the organization. And the uh, the, the advisors are a combination of both IROC and MFDA advisors. And I think that uh, you know the, the unique thing about our, our organization is that with the level of expertise that we have within the organization, be it group, be it uh, stock experts, we can pretty much cover any situation that comes up and we can well service our clients from that perspective. Excellent. Okay. So this is interesting because typically firms have either MFDA focus or IROC. You seem to be mixing those things up. So this is interesting, but uh, we'll come back to it later. Sure. So tell me uh, a little bit more about uh, about the business itself. Like, why does this work matter to you? Why do you basically get up every single day and go to work? Well, when I was a teenager, I read a book, and this is actually what kind of got me into thinking about financial services from that early age, but uh, it was The Wealthy Barber. And I know it's it's kind of an old, book. Yeah, old cliched book, but in there it has a number of different lessons that are, are told in a, in a methodology that uh, most people can relate to. And kind of using that strategy, I applied that to my own personal finances when I was 17, 18. Um, I was working as a bartender and I was thinking, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my tips, uh, the 10% rule and pay myself first. And, and it worked. And what I found is, you know, I had a nest egg of money that I was able to approach a financial advisor and start to inquire about what I should be doing with this money that's literally cash in my sock drawer. And from there, I uh, entered into my first uh, non-registered savings vehicle, which was a mutual fund. And I saw the magic of uh, how that money grew pretty dramatically, not knowing what I was in, not knowing what the economic conditions were at the time. But I think over a short period of time, I was able to triple my money. And that was, wow. uh, yeah, that was the kind of the the catalyst, which got me thinking, well, if somebody can do that for me, why can't I do that for somebody else? And that's really what kind of led me down the path of getting into financial services. Interesting. So definitely not the typical teenager. Most teenagers don't do that, but... Uh, no, no, exactly. <laughs> wow. So this is an interesting story. So tell me, yeah, so t- take me back to your early days. So made you really become an advisor? What was a trigger? But I'm curious, you know, how did you get into the business? And you've been in the business for a long time, almost 20 years. And, uh, but, you know, what was your, what, what really was the story now how did you end up being an advisor and running your own firm yeah so that's a very long story and i'm not sure how far back you want to go 
I want the details. If it's a good yes. story, I want the details. Yeah, absolutely. So I had been contemplating working in the financial services business at the time that uh, I actually took the plunge. I was doing two roles. I was a broadcaster, so I graduated from broadcasting. Well, at the same time, I was moonlighting as a bartender. And there was a group of uh, senior executives that were coming into my bar from Manulife every Thursday for probably five or six years running. And it was at one point during their uh, their visit that I had expressed interest in, in taking the leap and moving into the financial services business. So they put me through the ringer. They um, interviewed me. And effectively, what I did is I started out as a branch administrator trainee, which was uh, an entry-level position, not to mention the fact that I was a trainee, not a branch administrator. Uh, so that took me to working out of a branch in, uh, first of all, Mississauga. The caveat to doing that program was that you had to be mobile. Mm -hmm. So after one year of working in Mississauga, I took the uh, opportunity to take a transfer to Victoria, British Columbia. And out in Victoria, my job function morphed a little bit. And, you know, from being a branch administrator, which was more the office manager, dealing with HR and, and commissions and things like that, uh, because we were such a small team out there, they were also looking at somebody who could be out in the marketplace and uh, as, a, as a, we'll call it a, a wholesaler for lack of better terminology. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I performed a dual role out there where I was the branch administrator slash uh, outside wholesaler, wholesaling life insurance and segregated fund products. That led me to getting transferred back into the Mississauga area, back to the original branch I started at. And I was at that point a full-fledged outside wholesaler wholesaling, um, like I said, segregated fund products and insurance products. So that was uh, that was kind of the the pattern or, or the the pathway which got me into the financial services business, working for a huge uh, multinational company. Uh, in my second tenure or stint in Mississauga, I received a, an unusual phone call from what I found out later to be a senior advisor. And effectively, what he was doing was he was uh, looking for somebody to transition his block of business to. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it was it was early days, uh, and I didn't feel as though you know taking the leap, uh, leaving Manulife in this particular case and joining him was the correct thing to do, considering that Manulife had invested a significant amount of money in relocating me back to Mississauga. So I respectfully declined the interview. However. My wife, who was also traveling with me, was looking for a role. And as it happened, uh, this particular advisor needed a, uh, a marketing assistant. And so my wife ended up taking the role within the organization. And the extension of that, of course, is that we ended up continuing to have dialogue along the way. So uh, about a year after coming back to Mississauga and a year after initially being approached about joining the senior advisor in his practice, uh, I decided to take the leap of faith and join him and my wife in, uh, in the practice which at the time had relocated from Toronto to Oak. So uh, here I was, you know, kind of a middle manager, had the stability of a good job uh, with benefits, more or less a nine to five job. And suddenly I'm thrust into a position where I joined a complete stranger. albeit my wife had been with him for a year. And I was given a desk and a filing cabinet and a phone. And basically said, go do your thing. Unlimited burning potential, right? Because 100% commission. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Okay. So unfortunately, and probably not atypically, uh, the senior advisor really wasn't a great mentor. Mm -hmm. Not because he wasn't interested in mentoring me, but I think like all other advisors, we're just so busy. I call it tyranny of the urgent. And so his heart was in the right spot, but the delivery mechanism for him to be able to sit down with me and, and walk me through the sales process, it just wasn't his thing. So I ended up kind of floundering for a few months uh, until we ended up hiring a firm out of Kitchener-Waterloo called The Personal Coach. I know that. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, Art Schoolie had actually just recently started that company at the time. Mm-hmm. And what I was looking for was I was looking more for that what would have been the traditional sales manager role. I was looking for somebody to be able to, I guess, be accountable to, first of all. Mm-hmm. But you know, somebody that I can bounce ideas off of, somebody that could provide me with confidence to be able to go out there and to uh, prospect effectively. So he and I sat down and we created a value proposition. We created a more or less a script. Yeah, so we we did these scripts and then we ended up doing a bit of role playing just so that I understood oh, the uh, how I, how I would approach a client and then some of the rebuttal that I might get from that client. But then came the the challenge of trying to find prospects to be able to deliver that kind of scripted talk to. So we we tried several different things, some of which worked, of course, and some of which didn't work as well as others. You know, one of the things I found was uh, joining the Oakville Chamber of Commerce. Every month there would be a newsletter that came out, and in that newsletter it would indicate uh, somebody who had recently joined the chamber. And what I would do is I would cold call that person and suggest that they joined the chamber for a reason, and I would give them 25 minutes to tell their story to me. And in the last five minutes, I would tell my story to them. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and it worked. Uh, actually, one of my biggest clients uh, cold called and, and that way. And they just recently sold their business for $15 million. So mm-hmm. I watched them grow from a, a two-person company to a you know, 30, 40-person technology company. So mm. this kind of illustrates that cold calling isn't necessarily the greatest thing to do, but it can work. It's all based upon being in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. And one question about that. Do you think, does it still work as effectively you think? Of course, as you said, you know, it can work effectively, but I'm just curious with, you know, with the social media, with the proliferation of content out there, you need to be very strategic when it comes to cold calling. And like you were very strategic. I mean, first of all, it's kind of baffling that you're joining an advisor and he's promising you great thanks and training. And then all of a sudden you're ending up with actually working with a coach. And uh, that was another smart thing to do. But but you were you have a business, you're you're hiring a coach, you're creating those scripts. But then when it comes to prospecting, right? You're right. very strategic about you know how you're going to email this person, what, what, what exactly you're going to tell that person. So do you think that still works today? Or, or you know maybe their returns are not as much as you used to? be, but uh, do you think this is still a viable strategy to, for some advisors to grow their book or business? No, I don't think so. I think that uh, cold calling really is a thing of the past. And you know, m- maybe with a different terminology, maybe it's cold texting, maybe it's cold emailing, maybe it's mm-hmm. cold. But we have so many methodologies now for screening our phone calls that I, as an advisor who get cold called all the time by um, wholesalers, uh, you know, I screen their calls. I typically and admittedly, I don't return their calls. And so, you know, if I put the shoe on the other foot, I can assume that uh, if an advisor is calling a prospect or a a cold call, uh, that individual likely is not going to return that call. So can it work still? I think if it was done in a different methodology, using a different technology, perhaps, but certainly not the old fashioned way of picking up the phone and calling anymore. Anyway, it's got you to the point that you had success with that because it worked at the time. And uh, what happened next? Well, it it wasn't just that it was, uh, you know, there was other things I was doing as well. So I was trying to align myself with some centers of influence and you know, have that reciprocity in terms of mutual referrals. Like accountants, lawyers? That's Accountants, lawyers, mortgage brokers, you know, any number of people that would be willing to use you in their referral network. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was one other area that I really, really kind of found to be really useful. And this is where, to this point in time, utilizing the services of the senior advisor and his practice, to your point that you made earlier, I mean, I was really out there on my own. And in effect... If I really think about it in retrospect, I was building my own business, yeah. just utilizing the office space that he was providing and the admin support. But one thing I did do is I recognized that he had a number of pensions on the books. 
And I started to think about, wouldn't it be great to be able to go out to each one of the pension members Mm -hmm. and to sit down with them and to talk about what they've done on uh, their level? And so I did that. I I started to set up lunch and learns within these different organizations. And the idea that I used for the employer was to suggest to them that this was another thing that they could offer their employees that would help to better their overall investment strategy. So I called it the employee care program. And I thought, you know, if you position it that way with the employer and the employer positions that with the employees, it can be perceived as being an added benefit. Um, So what that did is that ended up opening a whole bunch of other doors for me where I was able to sit down, look at what the pension assets were, talk about how they're allocated, but then also uh, look at how they're commingling with personal assets they may have. Mm -hmm. So so that was uh, that that to me is really what I was able to bring up my uh, converting prospects into clients pretty rapidly when I started to use that methodology. Okay, so that makes sense. And I think this is a really great strategy, right? Because it gives you the leverage, right? You can talk to the right people very quickly. And I see how this can be very effective, uh, probably even today. So, but you're building your business within the structure of the other advisor. So, you know, how did you end up building Cornwall Wealth Management? How did you transition in the end working with that advisor to running your own firm? So just for clarity, at the time, the company was called Marlette. And uh, the, the senior advisor's name, he's no longer with us. Peter Marlette was his name. So when I entered into the business, I entered into the business under the premise that I would eventually buy his practice. Mm-hmm. However, for the first year, what I wanted to do is we had a, a kind of a mutual agreement. It would be beneficial for me to come in and test the waters and see what the business was all about before I actually committed to purchasing the business. Mm-hmm. And my thinking around that was uh, twofold. I wanted to get a, a barometer on, he was an older guy, and my concern was, was I buying a practice that would be an eroding practice? simply because the client base was of similar age. So I wanted to find out the demographic of the client before committing to purchase. The other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to see if I had a connection with the clients. And as all all advisors know, when you inherit a client versus when you organically grow a client, the inherited client, you may not actually see eye to eye all the time. Whereas the organic client, presumably you've grown with them and developed and evolved that client and you've seen eye to eye all the way through. So when we hit that year mark, we entered into the the buy-sell agreement with the intent that, uh, again, Heather and I would buy the business and he would then continue to work in the business after it was purchased. Okay, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. So this is an interesting strategy too, right? Because a lot of people are buyers, they might be approaching an advisor or they may be introduced to other, other advisors who want to transition their books or business, but they typically, you know, I, I don't see that step that you've uh, basically took and to work with advisor for a year just to see, just to test the waters as you said. So would you advise this was a good decision for you or would you structure things differently? And looking at it in retrospect, I think it was the perfect decision because again, what it did do is it allowed me to really get a handle on what the business was all about, get inside and understand the numbers. What what was the annual revenue? Where was the revenue coming from? What were the number of clients? What was the age of the client? And then to start to think about strategy on how you can grow that, you know, you start looking at uh, intergenerational wealth transfers and Mm -hmm situations like that. So you get a better understanding as to where are the kids? Are the kids, your client might be in in the GTA, but if the kids are living in Hawaii and Switzerland, that generational wealth transfer is probably not going to come back to you, right? So I think that in retrospect, looking at it, and if I were to give some advice to somebody that was in a situation similar, I think it's an ideal way to really get a handle on that client base before committing. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but we've actually, we purchased a couple of other businesses along the way. Mm -hmm. And we ended up learning a few things in those purchases, one of which uh, we didn't do our due diligence to find out that the bulk of the assets that we purchased were leveraged. 
And so here we are, we're, we're purchasing an asset base based upon a recurring revenue, but those assets really don't belong to the, to the clients. They belong to the lender. So, you so know, you, yeah, it, the risk is higher, but I, I think the moral of that story is that if you can work in the practice, you get a better understanding of it and you don't end up with surprises like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let's transition to you running, you're in charge of, of your own ship at a time. You've uh, purchased a uh, completed the purchase of the business, what happened next? Well, so there were several things that were happening kind of coincident with leading up to the purchase of the business. One of the things we recognized is as we started to actually gain some traction and grow client base, Mm -hmm. we needed to add a body, the bare minimum one body. So we brought on another marketing assistant. The other part to the equation was, you know, how do we structure the the sale and purchase agreement? What was happening, of course, was the seller wanted a higher price for the business and the buyer wanted to, to, to buy the business for less than what the seller wanted to, to sell it for. Typical. And that's just the way the world works, isn't it? Yes. So uh, we brought in, uh, again, we brought in the personal coach who helped to mediate the deal. And the long and short of it was that we were able to come up with uh, numbers that were amicable for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then the question became, what happens to the senior advisor? And when, you know, at this stage now, we're dealing with a 77, 78 year old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as he has uh, what I would call intellectual capital mm-hmm. for the clients and understanding the history behind the clients, keeping up on the current changes that were happening from a financial perspective, it really wasn't his, his area of expertise. So the concern was that uh, he was out there perhaps positioning products that weren't being positioned correctly and or um, at the time, kind of interesting, uh, he was out there peddling annuities. Uh-huh. And for anybody who doesn't know annuities, basically you're locking your money in for the rest of your life into yeah. what could be historically the lowest interest rate environment that we've seen. And so this all kind of put up red flags for me. And, and so I approached Peter about um, being our goodwill ambassador for the company. And in lieu of going out and, and actually positioning products and, and different investment vehicles for the clients, it was my suggestion that he go out and he keep the clients happy. Just take them for lunch, uh, talk about their kids, talk about their grandkids. Uh, if he bumped into anybody that was a potential prospect, then he would bring them over to me. And then we would do some sort of comp split on that. So in my opinion, you know, as, as you're sitting there as a 78-year-old and you're working with these clients for 50 plus years, uh, here's an opportunity to go out and just be just be social with your clients. And the, the caveat to that is that I offered him uh, a stipend of money to do that on a monthly basis. And uh, he flatly declined. <laughs> In fact, I in fact I think he was quite offended by the fact that I was in a roundabout way suggesting that he maybe not be on the investment side of the business anymore. He ended up leaving mm-hmm. and joining another senior advisor, mm-hmm. both both in age and in tenure. And uh, there was a few clients that migrated over to where he was at, uh, which was was in con- contradiction to his uh, P clause. Mm-hmm. However, you know, I was of the mindset that if these clients really wanted to leave and go join a 78-year-old, then they probably weren't great clients to begin with. So that, so with his departure, uh, now I, I'm holding the reins with my wife and we're trying to steer the ship and the ship that we're steering is getting more inertia because we're bringing on more and more clients. So we ended up buying our first business uh, that we ended up buying. We bought a block of business, but we brought the advisor along with it. Mm-hmm. And, and the thought process there was, A, we wanted to increase our overall asset base. And mm-hmm. so we did that in, a, in an acquisition form. But at the same time, we also wanted to have another body who had a CFP and were duly licensed. 
so that they could uh, manage the client base of the clients that I wasn't getting around to. Uh, so that that worked really well. And we continued to, again, grow assets and grow inertia. And we ended up bringing on another employee. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, here we are within time frame of, of, I would say, give or take 18 months. We've gone from a three-person organization to a six-person organization. And yep. we've gone from about 30 million in assets to probably at that time, I would say between 60 and 70 million of assets. So we're growing really, really quickly. And uh, I, actually, I was just going to ask about numbers, but uh, yeah, you, so you're growing the team, you're growing pretty quickly, you're doing organic growth and you're purchasing assets, basically, or you're, you're bringing other books of business. Okay, excellent. Okay, what happens uh, What happens next, I guess? <laughs> well, and, and so we continued to grow and we bought another uh, practice and we brought in another advisor and our asset base went from 70 million up to, I think at its peak, we were pushing 125. And then oh. even even later on, we were up to close to 150. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, I, I had an yeah. Thank you, thank you. And you know, it was it was the dream that uh, that I think every advisor wanted. You know, we we had a business that was generating over a million dollars of uh, gross revenue annu- annually. Mm-hmm. You know, we had 125 to 150 million of assets under administration. Mm-hmm. And what I started to realize was a couple of things. One, I wasn't happy. Interesting. Which which is kind of shocking. Shocking because what I was finding was I didn't have any free time. So as much as I was making good income, my days were starting early in the morning and they were going late into the evening and I wasn't finding that I had that work-life balance. So that, that was really got me. And so that was kind of the first thing. The second thing was I found that I was, when I was working, I was working more on the business than in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you're dealing with other advisors who are coming to you with a portfolio. Can you do a portfolio analysis with me? Can you make sure that this is uh, what the client should be investing in to HR problems where, uh, you know, this person's not happy with this other employee? We even went in so far as we, we had a situation where our phones were hacked. Wow. And so um, what I mean by that is, is that somebody over the course of a weekend hacked into our phone system and sold long distance cards in somewhere in Africa. And we were on the hook for just over that weekend, they, they ratcheted up $10,000 in long distance calls of which we were, oh my God. we were obliged to have to pay. Yeah. So you start looking at all these things that are going on and you're thinking what I wanted to really be doing is I wanted to be sitting down face to face with clients. I didn't want to necessarily be working on building business strategies and maintaining business strategies. Mm-hmm. So uh, in a conversation with my wife at the age of 45, we both agreed, well, maybe it's time to sell. And, uh, you know, that when that news got out there, that kind of rocked the world. Well, I'm, I'm surprised because you're you're in your prime, 45 years old, and you're thinking about selling the business at the time. Interesting. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think my colleagues all thought I was a bit crazy. We you know, finally got to that point where the business was running on automatic, well, perceivably on automatic, even though I was involved in it still very heavily and generating great free cash flow. But yeah, at the time, I was also recognizing that it was probably more of a seller's market than it was a buyer's market. Because what was happening was we were seeing a number of advisors that wanted to gain their asset base, but they weren't necessarily patient enough to try to grow that organically. You know, they were looking for the, I want to add 25, 30, 50, 100 million assets in one foul swoop. And we reached out to the marketplace just to kind of take the pulse of how many people would be interested. And the first four people that we approached definitely had interest. So did you do it yourself? Have you managed the M&A process yourself? Or did you hire an advisor or another company that basically puts you in touch with potential buyers of, of the business? How did you go about doing that? Yeah, it's a great question. Through the years of working, I had 
formed a number of different strategic alliances with other advisors and or had gotten to know a number of advisors across the country. So in lieu of using a third party, I just reached out and kind of identified three or four advisors that I think could be a good fit. And then when you think about that, you know, on the good fit basis, it's not just a matter of making sure that that advisor is a good fit for your client, but it's also making sure that the advisor can actually afford to write the check. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about a, a business that had grown to, again, I think at the time, somewhere between 125 and 150. Mm-hmm. And, and I use that delta because it was uh, a time where the markets were still kind of ratcheting up. Mm-hmm. So as the markets continued to ratchet up, the asset base continued to grow. Mm-hmm. And so I think at, at the time that we started into the dialogue of, of selling, we were at 125. By the time that we got the sale done, I think we we're at 150. And that's why I'm using those two numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the key was, well, A, making sure that the clients aligned with the advisor geographically, making sure that the advisor wanted to work within the geographical confines of the client base that I had. And I think, uh, you know, the simplicity of making sure that the dealer was still the same dealer that I was dealing with. So we weren't going to have to change mutual fund dealers. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, would be meaning repay for every single client. And what we ended up finding was, oh, there's one other thing. And I, I wanted to make sure that there was a handful of our staff that were taken care of. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to sell the business from under them and then have them be jobless. And mm-hmm. so I, uh, as part of my negotiation, I negotiated uh, three positions as part of the, the buy and sell agreement. Right. So it probably doesn't make sense to transition all staff because, I mean, there's some duplication. They, there's an existing practice that runs and, and there's some duplication. But, uh, okay, so you know that that was part of the negotiation. And the question is really is, you know, what, how did you structure your relationship with the advisor? I mean, did you want to stay with a business or did you want to basically, you know, have a clean sort of break? How did you approach that, that part? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is this is one of the things that made it work really well. I wanted to stick around. But I wanted to stick around getting back to my roots, which was I wanted to be able to identify the clients that I had grown time Marlette. And I wanted to continue to work with the ones that I really got a, a good kick out of working with. And, and what I mean by that is clients that actually listen to what you're saying and act on recommendations, as opposed to clients that are, are simply looking to hear what they want to hear. There's a number of clients out there that they'll approach an advisor. And if they don't get the answer from that advisor, they'll approach another advisor until eventually they find an advisor that agrees with them. So what else? This is really interesting. And thanks for getting deeper into it. So what else are you looking for in clients? For example, if you're identifying the client that's um, you know potential client if it will be a good fit for you. You know, you said that a couple of things about you know following your advice and being able to implement with, and of course you have to see, as you said earlier, eye to eye with the client as well. But what else are you looking specifically and what kind of red flags tell you that, well, this client I don't think is going to be a good fit for me? I think demographic is a big thing. So I'm 49 and I'm, in my opinion, I'm kind of in that sweet zone now. And, and I look at people that are of that same age category and a number of those clients now, their kids are in post-secondary. They're actually starting to use the RESPs that I had set up for them when the babies were born. But, you know, the more and more they're becoming empty nest and they're very motivated to act on advice given because, again, they can see that retirement time horizon. So ultimately what I'm looking for is I'm looking for people that are, you know, in that 49, 50 age category that I can continue to grow and develop. And there's some relatability as well. 
you know, so it's, it's easy for me to relate to somebody who's my age. It's much more difficult to relate to somebody who's 20 and maybe they do things a whole lot differently than what we would do today. So let's clarify, you're still with the business right now and you basically decided, okay, I don't want to deal with the business stuff with, you know, this business strategy growth and the headaches that typically come with being a business owner, right? Uh, you know, right. making sure payroll is just fine and, uh, you know, benefits and everything is in, is in place. And you basically wanted to focus on the relationship with a client, which is, you know, if this is a good fit for the other advisor, that's perfect right because you're involved in you're still growing the business but you really focus on what you want to do and you de-risk your situation right because the transaction basically happened right so you have liquidity and you can basically have at the same time uh, as you mentioned earlier have a little bit more time right now you can do whatever you want <laughs> so that seems like a perfect perfect fit i guess <laughs> yeah I, and in fact i'm surprised that more advisors haven't actually taken this initiative and, and done it you know, you, you kind of look out into the future and you say, well, you know, when we sell our business, prototypically, we're selling on a, an exponent of recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. At the time that I was uh, entering into these negotiations, there was some rumor about the removal of recurring revenue in terms of trailing commissions. Mm-hmm. And that may still come down the pipe. We don't know what the future holds. Uh, so, you know, what the value of your business is today is a known commodity. What the value of your business is in the future is an unknown commodity because if the structure of compensation changes then you know the value of your business may change along with it. Mm-hmm. So so I, I admittedly I'm a little bit surprised more advisors haven't done this to allow themselves a the ability to solidify the value of their business today but B, to free up the time to be able to have that work-life balance and enjoy some of the fruits of their labor. Makes a lot of sense. Well, it seems like you're very proactive at planning and very strategic about planning. And when you do that, then plans basically turn out the way you want it. So, so that's that, that's great. And, and again, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of independent financial advisors, they're entrepreneurs. They're running their businesses. They probably don't, they, they think about day-to-day growing the business because that that's gives them the, the thrill that's what they're they're doing. I mean, that's, the, that's what they had to do early on. But when you get to the certain level, the question is, you know, what what's my exit strategy? And, and some people may enjoy the business. Some some people may not be as I would say lucky even finding the right successor, right? Because right. there are a lot of success stories, but there are a lot of horror stories about transitioning through with the advisor that that went wrong, right? So I'm sure some advisors are afraid of that. But uh, is there anything else about the transition? I mean, I didn't expect we'll dive so so deeply into this topic, but is there is there anything else that you think would be is really an essential component of a successful transition? especially when you think about exiting the business or even partly exiting the business? Yeah, I think that the success really revolves around the continuity of of who the client's dealing with. And, you know, in our case, what we had is we brought over a couple of our admin people and we brought over myself and we brought over Heather for the first couple of years. And so from their perspective, a client's perspective, you know, they're calling into the same phone number. The name on the, uh, the answering machine or the voicemail is a little bit different. My extension number is different. And in fact, this is a really strange coincidence, but we ended up even moving in the same building. And so from a client's perspective, you know, everything's pretty much the same other than the logo on the door. And so I think for a successful transition to happen, even if you do want to, over time, rebrand the company, mm-hmm. I think maintaining the brand and the continuity for a, a specified period of time post-transition mm-hmm. really helps the continuity and, and maintains that client. And then you can start to do your rebrand because the client recognizes that, hey, you know what? Nothing's really changed. It's just, you know, the name of the business has changed and that's there's some other people around, which actually can can be a good thing because now the client recognizes that if Brad's not available or Brad's indisposed of, 
uh, he's got some backup, whereas previously that backup might have been might not have been as uh, as readily available. Knowledgeable. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. So the so the takeaway here is maybe that you shouldn't change the log on the door very quickly. I mean, you should <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah. do this a little slower. But another thing is, I think I, I presume communication with clients would be would, would be critical. I mean, how did you approach the communication of client explaining that? Okay, because I think they they probably were surprised as well. Right, the 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 advisor that you purchased the book of business initially was was seventy, I, I think eight. So right. I mean, that makes sense, right? He, right. he should have been long retired, and you were you know forty five around that time, right? So right. Uh, I mean, you're mid forties, and you're thinking about transitioning the business. How did you approach the communication with clients? So we we actually positioned it as a strategic alliance. Okay. And and our way of thinking was. Do they really have to know that I've sold the equity in the business? You know, that's because if nothing from their perspective, nothing is going to change, then whether I have equity in the business or no equity in the business, that's really immaterial. So, you know, we positioned it again as it was a strategic alliance. It it added more product offerings to our shelf because now we've got IROC Mm -hmm. attached to us. So in in a roundabout way, I mean, it was a win-win for the client because now we've got much more offering than we had previously. Oh, excellent. Okay. And this brings me back to MFDA and IROC. So typically firms transition basically from one to the other because, again, it's simpler. You have economies of scale. You have basically one regulatory body. So how are you approaching or how the current advisors are basically thinking about here's the MFDA side, here's the IROC side. You know, is there a thought about transitioning fully to IROC or both businesses are typically independent right now? There's no need to transition. I'm just curious about you know why why do we have two versus for example one? Yeah, and I think that primarily because when we ran and operated Marlette, we were an MFDA organization, and when we merged into the new company, they were primarily an IROC organization. The challenge becomes that if you do decide to make that migration from one of the dealers over to the other, or one of regulatory bodies, and most typically it would be moving from MFDA to IROC, then you're on the hook for your assistance to have to make that migration as well. And as much as you know, I might be prepared to go through the education and, and the evolution of that, I don't think the assistants are prepared to go through that. So that would be the first thing. The second thing would be, uh, once you do that, there is a, a repapering process that would have to happen with all of the clients. And it has to be done within a particular time period. Otherwise, the clients become uh, housed back to the dealer. Uh, and the third thing is, I don't necessarily think that it's needed in the situation that we're in, because should I have a client that ends up having a stock portfolio that they want to retain, I can just walk down the hall, introduce them to one of my colleagues, and he or she will take over that portion of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And and so the good thing around that is that you've got all assets in-house now, as opposed to, whereas in the past, maybe the assets that were in stock were with CIBC or uh, RBC. Mm-hmm. And now you're at risk of having your assets being purged by that advisor. So uh, to make a long story short, I don't see the need to make that migration at this stage. My, my opinion may change down the road. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, we dove a lot into your story. And it's a, it's a really fascinating story about you know, really starting the business and growing it really quickly and then transitioning at still fairly young age. So, so this is going to be definitely interesting for a lot of advisors. But I think you touched on a lot of different things that were both difficult and uh, some of the challenges that you had. But if you're going to think about you know, top maybe one or two biggest challenges in building the practice, like what was difficult at a time when you are still growing the business, when you purchased the business from the initial advisor? Well, the, I would say the number one biggest challenge was was working with the initial advisor. And you know, what I was finding was that he was he had a, a tendency to put fences around some clients, and he was he was trying to uh, sideswipe me from being able to meet with those particular clients, despite the fact that I had actually bought them. Interesting. So that was the single biggest challenge was dealing with that that aspect of things. 
Secondarily, I think the other biggest challenge is, I mean, this is a, it's a fairly lonely business. You, sometimes you question whether you're doing the right things. I still beat myself up over a client transfer out, even though, you know, I've had, that's happened multiple times over my career. And you're always second guessing yourself. What did I do wrong? Why didn't they like me? Uh, what could I have done to conserve that, that business? So I think the loneliness, sometimes the lack of confidence that we come across, I think, and maybe I'm, maybe this is just me, but I think a large chunk of advisors have the tendency to be fairly non-confident. They hide it very well around their business acumen and their sales acumen. So, you know, I find the challenge to be maintaining confidence and maintaining that up feeling in an environment that's, that seems to be rapidly shifting through regulatory change. A couple of questions here before we wrap up. So you just essentially started a new career, <laughs> maybe not, but <laughs> but a very tailored career. So what uh, what are some of the products that you're most excited about in your business or even, even outside of the business? I'm just curious, what, what where do you spend your time right now? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we ended up, uh, we just built a house up on Lake Huron. Nice. So uh, talking about projects, coincident with selling the business, we also sold our house in Oakville and we hit that timing of it almost to the day when that market mayhem was going on. So that allowed us to actually uh, to parlay some of the proceeds of the sale of the house and rebuild a piece of property that we had up on Lake Huron. So that's been an 18-month endeavor, and that has uh, has really been a very time-consuming project. I also enjoy music. I've uh, started to really play and, and, and envelop into playing guitar, and uh, I enjoy writing. And I've done some writing on the financial services side, but I've done some writing on some other uh, for some other businesses as well. Not paid, just voluntary. Mm-hmm. But the prior life that I had would not have afforded me the time to be able to do any of those things. Yeah, you are well. You're broadca- in broadcasting in an early career, right? So that's that's yeah. title. So what do you write? I'm, I'm just curious. What what do you enjoy writing, especially relevant to the financial services? Various blog type things about different sales ideas. I'm doing it primarily for either a website or our website or other websites. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy doing that. I also I write a travel blog. We do quite a bit of traveling. So it's not, it started as a bit of a kind, kind of a joke, just lo- uploaded it onto Facebook for friends and family to kind of keep track. And it grew a little bit from there where more and more people were actually asking about, could they have access to it to now every time we travel, people are, are sitting on edge waiting for the travel blog to come. So yeah, there's all kinds of different things that again, allow me to afford me the time to be able to pursue some of these things and passions that I didn't have before. That's fantastic. So Brad, this podcast is all about growing your practice. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners. So let's say, let's focus maybe on one thing, especially newer advisors thinking about entering the business. What would you advise them? How would you start in this business when, if you were going to start today? Right. So unequivocally, I would join a senior advisor or an existing advisor's practice. I think that to think that you can grow a business from ground zero with little to no expertise, you're going to rapidly plow through your natural market, which is going to be friends and family. My experience in watching young advisors and reaching out to friends and family is that a lot of friends and family don't feel that individual has the confidence yet. They don't necessarily want to take the leap of faith with that individual until they know that they're around for a couple to a few years in the business. Mm-hmm. So you you tap through your natural market pretty quickly. You may get a handful of sales and then what? Whereas with, and when I use the term senior advisor, I, I don't mean necessarily age. I mean, advisor who has actually got it and existing practice that's that's a good operational practice and i think that by aligning yourself with that that typically those advisors have some clients that they can't get around to and that would be a great place for a young advisor to be able to kind of get their teeth wet so that would be the the number one thing that i would say to a young advisor number two would be 
don't lose confidence. And, and you know, I've seen it all too often where people have, you know, they, they've hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. You know, they they like the lifestyle that they see the senior advisors living. What they don't see is is that how did that senior advisor get to that position? And they don't see that that advisor was working till 10, 11 o'clock at night mm-hmm. with young families four or five nights a week for five years. Mm-hmm. So don't lose confidence. Continue to do the things that are are working for you. There's a an old expression in this industry. It works so well that we stopped doing it. And there's some truth behind that. So those would be the the kind of nuggets of wisdom that I would provide to a young advisor. Absolutely. And maybe uh, higher support and maybe some coaching. And uh, you mentioned the personal coach company a couple of times on the podcast. I, I should reach out to Julie Leith, who is a CEO yes. in our school, maybe, and talk maybe have them on a podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brad, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe ask some you know, further advice on M&A transactions or maybe some sales advice, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you right now? Probably email, because I am between a couple of different cities. Mm-hmm. Up at Lake Huron and in Oakville and in Kitchener. My email is uh, brad.amlin at cornwallwealth.ca. So that's B R A D dot A M L I N, Cornwall, C O R N W A L L, wealth, W E A L T H dot C A. That would be the best. Perfect. And we'll link it up your, your business as well. So if uh, you know, people have issues with misspelling, we'll, we'll be able to provide that. So, Brad, thanks very much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed your story. It is not usual, but uh, it's it was fun to uh, dig a little bit into it and, and basically go along with you and see what decisions you've made. That's, uh, I will enjoy the conversation. So, thank you. And thank you for having me, Paul. I enjoyed the, the interview as well. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate if you left us a great review in iTunes because that helps us get discovered. And if you want to get in touch with us, please email podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.